This is The Athletic Baseball Show on The Athletic Podcast Network. Hey everyone, welcome to the Athletic Baseball Show. This is the Mailbag Edition, coming to you a little bit later this week. I'm Tim McMaster, along with Ken Rosenthal, as we record on Thursday, March 23rd, opening day, exactly one week away. Can you believe it? And it's been an exciting spring training, Ken, uh, not because of the spring training action, but the last time we recorded the Mailbag, it was a couple of days before the start of the World Baseball Classic. And wow, what a ride it's been. And you've had a front row seat on the Fox coverage for so many of these great games. Um, I hope if you're listening to this, you got a chance to watch some of these games because just some classic baseball, Puerto Rico and the Dominican Republic, Team USA and Venezuela, Mexico and Japan, the championship, all great stuff. Ken, what did you take away from it? Tim, I hate to tell people I told you so. (laughs) <laughs> but I'm going to say to open this show that I told you so. And if I recall correctly, you can tell me if I'm wrong. What I said going into this thing was watch the games. You might have your reservations about it. You might not like it. You might think it's dumb. Just watch the games. Now, I never imagined the games would be this good, but they've been good in the past. This year, for whatever reason, some kind of serendipity took place and all these magical things happened and the games were just incredibly competitive and entertaining and just plain fun. And the word fun is appropriate because I've been telling people, I told my wife this, I don't know, maybe four days before it ended. This was the most fun I've had covering baseball. And I don't say that lightly because I've covered baseball, obviously, a long time. This is my 37th season coming up as a full-time baseball person. And I've seen amazing things. I go back to the 91 World Series, which was my favorite World Series. That was a series where, with the Braves and Twins going at it, I couldn't wait to get to the park every day. The first time I had that feeling. 2001 World Series, the 9-11 one with the Diamondbacks and Yankees, and it went seven games, and Luis Gonzalez hit off Rivera. Great. Unbelievably fun. And then I can look at other World Series, too. Really, every World Series is great in its own way, but 2011, Cardinals and Rangers stood out, the David Freeze, Game 6. But this was a different version of it. And it's not the World Series. It's not even the regular season. It's different. And what I took out of it was the feeling the players had for this. Not just the foreign players, which we've seen for years. Players from other countries take incredible pride in playing for their national teams. That's true of the Dominican Republic. It's true of Japan, Korea... Name a country, that's true. But it hadn't always been true to the extent it was this particular tournament with the U.S. team. And it came from Trout, largely. Trout basically setting a tone, saying he wanted to play in this. He was the first guy to sign up. You heard all these stories on our broadcast. And he had incredible passion for the event. I interviewed him after one of these games on the field, and he talked about how he was having the time of his life. Mike Trout saying this. So you can joke and say, well, he plays for the Angels, so he's never played. Okay, got it, guys. But at the same time, for him to say that and for really every player in this tournament to say that, it meant a lot. And you saw it. You saw on the field 
that passion come out. And Tim, you mentioned some of the great games. There were amazing games throughout the thing, but you're right. The last week was incredible. And I just went back through my memory bank because you can forget things. But I saw four games in five days that were among the most memorable I'll ever see in my mind. Puerto Rico, Mexico, U.S. Venezuela, Mexico, Japan, and then U.S. Japan. Now, of those games, the U.S. Japan game was probably the least entertaining. But it was tense in its own way. And, of course, it ended with this magical at-bat between Trout and Otani. So... The naysayers, the skeptics, the people who don't like this event, they're probably never going to like it. There are a lot of people in our society who don't like anything, it seems. But it would be difficult for me to imagine someone who actually watched the games and is a baseball fan, not just a fan of his or her team, but a fan of the sport, to tell me, oh, this thing stinks. And I love the comments from people, no one cares. Really? No one means I don't care. Obviously, people care. The ratings reflect that. The attendance reflects that. All of the reasonable measures reflect that people really cared. Now, there's always going to be the injury risk. And we saw that freakish, flukish thing that happened to Edwin Diaz. It was horrible. There's no other word for it. Horrible, awful, just so upsetting. Not just the fans of the Mets, of course, and they were the most upset, but really any fan of the game. He's one of our best closers, the best closer, arguably. He's also just a bright, optimistic, sunshiny kind of personality, a guy that you just kind of love to be around. And for him to suffer that injury was awful. And then, of course, the Altuve 1-2 was very unfortunate. But I would say, and I've said this before and I'll say it again, injuries happen in spring training all the time. And certain things just are going to be part of the sport and they're unavoidable. Now, some fans have said, well, I'd rather those things happen under my team's watch. Really? Your team is so good at protecting players from injuries? There's not a team in this sport that really is successful at that. So for all of the concerns and all of the legitimate worries, these are legitimate worries. I'm not dismissing them. But at the same time, there is a greater good. The greater good is the growth of the sport through this tournament. And frankly, if you're not so interested in the greater good, as a fan of the game, you should simply be just enjoying the event for what it was. And it was just so compelling, so exciting. The crowds in the parks, Tim, it was so cool, especially in Miami, I would say. Phoenix was good. Miami, of course, the stakes were higher when I got there for the second round. And... I was wondering, Japan, Mexico, how's that going to be? Because Japan obviously is really far away. Mexico's pretty far away. But that was a great crowd with fans from Mexico, fans from Japan, fans from everywhere. So this was an event that was transcendent of the sport. It was absolutely compelling, thrilling, exhausting because it was every day. And the games were so intense. But... Again, I I can't recall having more fun just watching baseball every night. It was so cool to see the passion, to see a Rosa Reina do his thing, to see the Japanese pitchers in that last game, one after another, to see Sasaki the night before in in the semifinal. All of these things. If you like baseball, I have a hard time believing you didn't like this. And if you have concerns about your team, okay, again, I get it, but... 
this was something that really for a lot of people came out of nowhere. I've enjoyed it in the past. Other people have too. But this event, for whatever reason, it kind of caught fire. And it was a blast. There's no other word for it. It was a blast. And hopefully, you know, it continues to grow and people think less of the injuries. Because if you think about the World Cup, players always get hurt. And there's never the backlash that you saw from these injuries. Because people treat the World Cup as bigger than their teams. And this is never going to get to that point. Like, you're never going to get to the point where people are rooting for Team USA more than the Yankees or the Dodgers. But if it gets to a point where people are really invested, I think the injuries will be less of something people complain about. Neymar got injured at the World Cup, you know, last winter. You didn't hear yes. that sort of backlash. So, you know, it happens. And Tim, one other thing, and Britt Droli made this point in a column she wrote that was really good. And basically she said, okay, fans, you complain all the time that players are selfish, that all they care about is money. A lot of fans do complain about this and not without reason in some cases well here the players were unselfish the money was very little they they get something i'm not sure how much it's not of consequence to them maybe the way it would be to us (laughs) but here they are doing something the opposite of what fans criticize them for all the time and fans are still being critical Mm, not buying this guys we gotta do better do better (laughs) i hate that phrase but yeah (laughs) All right, and uh, you mentioned the interest, and the interest was also clear in our mailbag. There's a bunch of questions, so let's move on to that. Hey, this is Ken. I'm not available right now. Please leave a voicemail. Okay, let's jump right into it, Ken. Uh, Three World Baseball Classic questions off the top. These are good ones. First from Richie. He is a regular here in the mailbag. He says, I'm loving the World Baseball Classic, but wish more star pitchers were involved. I think the way to do that is to expand the WBC by holding the pool play round during spring training and the elimination rounds at the All-Star break. This could be achieved every four years by starting the season a week earlier. There are usually three to four days at the All-Star break. Add seven days to that, and you would have enough time to play the seven elimination games to go from eight teams down to the championship while still hosting an All-Star game, home run derby, futures game, and the draft. Richie, I like the idea. And actually, this is something that has been discussed and discussed at length. But Commissioner Rob Manfred said just the other day that basically MLB has gone round and round on this and they've determined that mid-March is the best time. Now, I like the idea of interrupting the season, but it does come with problems. And the problem essentially is, okay, you've got the players in the WBC who are going to be competing and they'll keep going. But what do the other players do for the 10, 11 days you're off, if that's how long it is? If you just did the semifinals and finals during the the All-Star break, you'd have a different question. But I just don't see it. And I also think you'd have the same concern from teams about guys playing. They have concerns about guys playing in the All-Star game. So... It just doesn't seem as practical. Now, greater minds than I probably could figure out a way to do this and schedule it properly without having too long a layoff for the players who aren't participating. Maybe it's a whole seven, six, seven-day thing. But it just doesn't seem to be something that baseball is interested in. And mid-March does work. It's not ideal because players are not completely built up. The hitters don't have the timing. The pitchers aren't 
fully where they're going to be opening day or beyond as far as strength. But it's just so problematic trying to find the right place in the calendar for this because we've got a six-month season and a one-month postseason. I get the question. I understand your point. And actually, I believe there's some merit to it. I just don't see it changing. All right. Mark says, very thankful to have the World Baseball Classic back in my life. I love the stage that it provides for all baseball players, stars, indie ball players, guys in foreign pro leagues and everyone in between. I understand why certain U.S. cities are selected for temperature or weather considerations. But do you think Seattle or any other cold weather city with a roof could be a U.S. host site in the future? I actually hadn't thought about this, but in one sense, I see no reason why not. Certainly, you have a dome, you're good. Now, Phoenix and Miami are sort of perfect because of the proximity to spring training. In Phoenix's case, spring training is right there. In Miami's case, there is no spring training in Miami per se, but there are teams within driving distance, plenty of teams. And it's a long drive for some, but the players just go right down there. It's not a big deal. So that is part of the appeal of Phoenix and Miami. But we have seen... The game's played in San Diego, the finals. We've seen them play at Dodger Stadium. So it's not out of the realm that something like this could happen. But I don't know that they would go as far as Seattle or any of the other retractable roof parks. I, I just don't see the convenience being there. And keep in mind, too, with Miami, and even to a certain extent with Phoenix because of its proximity to Mexico, but really with Miami, being one of the capitals, if not the capital of Latin America, so close to so many Caribbean countries that are prominent in this thing, I don't see them getting out of Miami anytime soon. I don't believe they should. The atmosphere there was incredible. So another question would be, why not have the finals in Tokyo one year, right? This is a worldwide event. Why should Japan be at such a disadvantage all the time? Well, the event is run by Major League Baseball and the Players Union, and I don't believe that they'd buy that for all those Major League players going over there. Some of them, of course, did go over there, and some of them had to deal with coming all the way back to Miami and the jet lag and all of that. But as with the scheduling, there's no perfect solution here. It just seems like they're in the right places. I wouldn't think that Seattle or someplace like that would be completely out of the question for an early round, but I'm not so sure about the finals. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Uh, Noah says, hey, Ken, I've been watching the World Baseball Classic this week, and it's got me wondering about the ball again. We always come back to the ball on this mailbag. Always the ball. Uh, I seem to recall hearing in the past that they use a pre-tacked baseball in Japan. What about in the WBC, though? Do they use the standard MLB baseball if such thing exists? Tongue in cheek, or <laughs> that's a great way to put yeah, it, or something else. And if they do use the MLB ball, does that give MLB pitchers a potential advantage over pitchers from those other leagues? I asked this question. It is the MLB ball, and it's the same Rawlings ball that is used in the regular season. And like with the All Star Game and the World Series, they stamp it differently, but it's the same ball. It's not the pre-tack ball that they use in Japan. It's our ball. So. It's a fair question to ask about whether it's a disadvantage for the Japanese pitchers in particular. It didn't appear to me <laughs> that they were too effective. It seemed okay. So, yeah, they seemed okay. So I don't, 
anticipate, I, I didn't hear any rumblings about this or any complaints. I'm not so sure why the transition from Japanese pitchers to our ball seems to be so much easier than the transition from our ball to the pre-tack ball that the Japanese pitchers use because when baseball has tried it out here, our pitchers have gone crazy. Nah, this doesn't work. Blah, blah, blah. So I don't know. I do want to see the pre-tack ball at some point. It would eliminate the sticky stuff question, and it's something that baseball, frankly, needs to have happen. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Guys tend to think looking sharp means starchy Oxfords and stiff chinos rather than effortless comfort, but it's possible to have it both ways. I'm all set for summer thanks to Mack Weldon. The Vesper polo shirt is so breathable you can wear it on the golf course, but it looks classy enough to wear to a party. The Maverick Tech Chino short is ultra flexible, and the Pima Crew Neck t-shirt is perfect for those casual weekends. There's no need to be uncomfortable in your clothing ever again. Some guys just want to look good without calling attention to themselves. Mack Weldon Apparel gives you understated good looks for understated confidence. Mack Weldon clothes are designed to fit your style and the demands of modern life. They look like regular clothes but feel like the latest in modern comfort. They're the go-to choice for guys who want to look great without even trying. Breathable underwear that keeps you cool, dry, and comfy all day. Crazy comfortable but elevated sweatpants. An upgraded classic polo with antimicrobial silver threads. An ultra soft antimicrobial tee for when you need to stay fresh longer. That's the Silver Crew Neck T-shirt. Get timeless looks with modern comfort from Mack Weldon. Go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off your first order with promo code MLBSHOW. That's M-A-C-K-W-E-L-D-O-N.com. Promo code MLB show. All right, that's it for the World Baseball Classic questions. Good stuff. Uh, We're going to move on to a voicemail next. Hey, Ken, uh, quick question for you. Do you ever see a worst-to-first season happening again? I'm talking specifically about the 1991 Braves going from being the worst in the National League to winning the division the next year. And I was wondering, just looking at the bottom of the standings from last year, the Rockies, the Reds, the Nationals, the A's, the Royals, and the Red Sox, it seems like none of these teams have even a shout of going worst to first. Is that ever going to be possible again? Good question. And you touch on a very sensitive issue in the game right now. And that issue is the disparity between big spending teams and not so big spending teams. And if you've read some of Evan Drellick's reporting in recent weeks, the tensions are flaring again. And because... We've seen so many, not so many, but a number of teams spend a lot of money this offseason, Mets, Padres, etc. The small market teams are worried, and rightly so. But at the same time, that question, that disparity question, trickles down to the competitive aspect, which is what you're talking about. And can I see a worst-to-first situation happening with a small market team? That's pretty difficult to imagine, the way the game is structured right now. I guess it would have to be a team with an incredible farm system having all of its prospects hit at once. 
We know that doesn't ever happen in the game. So that is difficult to imagine. And that, to some degree, is just a concern. At the same time, I can envision, even with this year's Red Sox, a scenario much like the 2013 Red Sox, where a team kind of rebounded really quickly because it had the resources, the financial resources. Now, the Red Sox didn't spend to the point where a lot of their fans think they should have spent. And for them to compete, they're going to need virtually everything to go right. But at the same time, it's not out of the question that it can happen. And it's not out of the question in the future that another large market team goes through a season in which it suffers a slew of injuries, just has a bad year, a bad vibe, fires its manager, brings in another manager, and voila, it's back. I'm actually looking forward to seeing the White Sox this year with the new manager. Now, they didn't finish last last year, but they had a disappointing season. But if you put all these different factors together, new manager, better health, you can see quick turnarounds. So it's not out of the question, but the disparity issue is a real one. And it's been really a historic one for baseball. It's been there forever. I'm not sure how to solve it. People say a salary cap. Well, the union's not going for a salary cap. And even with a salary cap, we see teams in the salary cap leagues that seem to be very poor every year. Not poor in terms of the money, but poor in terms of their performance. So I'm not going to get into that today. But yes, the worst of first thing does become more difficult as the disparity in payrolls increases. The Red Sox have made it a regular thing for some reason. I don't, I don't know how they do it. But you mentioned 2013. They also, 2020, they finished last. 2021, yep. they didn't win, finish first in the division, but they went to the ALCS. I don't know, the, the up-and-down franchise. Your team whiplash. Yeah, they do. All right, Daniel says, with the emphasis on stuff and velocity, do you think a knuckleballer will ever throw more than 50 innings in a season again? Why wouldn't a team want to have a knuckleballer who could provide a change of pace compared to the other arms and uh, on the staff and who could pitch more often as teams rely more and more on relievers? Daniel, the reason why we don't see knuckleballers is because they're so difficult to catch. And yes, there's an emphasis on velocity and stuff. And there's not a young pitcher out there who grows up thinking, man, I want to be a knuckleballer. Again, the catcher is a primary issue here. And if you recall, and Tim, I know you recall this, going years back when the Red Sox had Wakefield, Tim Wakefield, and Doug Mirabelli, they brought him in. I can't remember if it was a trade or how it worked, but he had to come in to catch Wakefield. He wasn't with the team. And they got him a police escort from Logan Airport to Fenway Park. It was over-the-top ridiculous. <laughs> but it showed the importance of having a catcher who can handle a knuckleball. There aren't many catchers alive right now who have ever caught a knuckleball. So that, to me, is the bigger issue. It's just tough to develop that way. Now, a guy like Wakefield wasn't originally a knuckleballer and over time developed into one. But... Again, it goes back to the catcher, in my opinion. How do you find someone to handle that thing? It's not easy. It's like catching, what do they used to say, Tim? Like eating soup with a fork. Yeah. That's kind of the equivalent of catching a knuckleball. You need a really big glove. And those yes. guys do. Those catchers that catch the knuckleball have the, the huge glove. Uh, yeah, that Mirabelli story was great. I think they traded for him at the deadline, I think, because he had been with them for years. 
and he had signed elsewhere, I think, and then they traded for him to bring him back just for the score. I, I believe Something you're right. Like it, it had to be a trade. He wasn't coming up from the minors. Right. He was a major league player right. at the time. Uh, yeah, that, that one was funny. And Wakefield, yeah, Wakefield was a position player um, and was at the end was not right. going to make it to the big leagues as a position player and just said, hey, let me try this, and wham. Um, knuckleballs are fun, though. Hopefully we do see a few, you know, like – Otani, right? You're not going to see a lot of Otanis, guys that can play both ways. Maybe occasionally we get a knuckleballer who will come That's a good through. point. Maybe. Maybe. We can hope. Uh, all right. Ryan says, first time, long time, yada, yada, yada. It seems like opt-outs have exploded in popularity over the last few seasons, and players' options are now less common than they used to be. But what is the actual technical or tactical difference between the two for example is there really any real world difference between a one-year deal with the player option for a second year and a two-year deal with an opt-out after the first year i imagine there has to be some salary cap or luxury tax income tax implications but i just don't see it ryan when i looked at your question my initial instinct was you know what he's right they're exactly the same thing and in my mind i've always thought a player option and an opt-out is the same thing. But I posed the question to an agent. I said, what's going on here? What's the difference? Is it luxury tax that it's structured this way for? And he pointed out, and this will make a lot of sense to you. It made sense to me as soon as he said it. And there is a difference. He said there is a difference and it's pretty significant. He said a player option gives the player the right to extend at an agreed upon price and term. Right. If you have a $15 million salary with a $15 million player option, that is agreed upon. That's the number. An opt-out, on the other hand, gives the player the right to walk away from the remaining term of his contract. So Manny Machado walked away from a certain amount of money to negotiate or would have done that to negotiate a better deal with the Padres. So they are different. Again, one, the player option, you're agreeing to... Return to your team at an agreed-upon term. The other, the opt-out, you're leaving terms that have already been established. So that, to me, is a distinction. It's it's very important distinction, actually. Now, I also asked if the CBT, competitive balance tax, is a factor in all this, and the agent said no. With very few technical exceptions, they are both considered guaranteed years. So let me explain it one more time. I think it's pretty clear, but why not? An option gives the player the right to extend at an agreed-upon price and term. An opt-out gives the player the right to walk away from the remaining term of his contract. Although if he didn't opt-out, he would be staying at the agreed-upon amount, in a sense. That's true. And listen, they're kind of cousins, I guess, in contractual terms. And they're not entirely different. But that is a distinction, Tim, that I hadn't thought of. It, it, It... it is clear to me once once this agent explained it, I'm like, yeah. oh, yeah, duh. <laughs> yep. But I can see why a fan would say, whoa, whoa, it's the same thing. Yeah, that makes sense. Building a portfolio with Fidelity Basket Portfolios is kind of like making a sandwich. It's as simple as picking your stocks and ETFs, sort of like your meats and other topics, and managing it as one big, juicy investment. Mmm, now that's pretty good. Learn more at fidelity.com slash baskets. Investing involves risk, including risk of loss. Fidelity Brokers Services, LLC. Member NYSC SIPC. 
All right, Ross is up next. He says, hey, Ken, up here in Seattle, I keep reading how the M's have to travel more than any other team in baseball. Expansion is a golden opportunity to mitigate this discrepancy. Vancouver seems to be a perfect candidate for an expansion team, a large, vibrant international city full of baseball-mad fans. We know about them in Seattle because they flood Seattle every time the Blue Jays come to town. Vancouver makes more sense than tiny Portland, small fish in the crowd, pond Nashville, or <laughs> I'd rather be gambling Vegas. <laughs> well, Ross, you have some very clear biases against those <laughs> cities. I thought about your question and did a little research on it. So originally I thought, it's kind of weird. We do talk about Portland. We don't talk about Vancouver. Why is that? And I thought, well, maybe Vancouver's farther away. Maybe the size of the city is different. But no, there are very comparable situations here between Vancouver and Portland with regard to Seattle. Portland is 173 miles from Seattle, 173. Vancouver, 140. So really, that's not much of a difference at all. Population of the two cities is about the same as well. But yet you never hear... Tim, you never hear Vancouver mentioned no. as a possible expansion. So you hear Portland quite frequently. Now, Portland is not necessarily as viable as some because it's smaller. But the reason I think perhaps Vancouver would be more problematic is that the Blue Jays like their status as Canada's only team. Now, if Montreal was viable, I'm sure baseball would go there, right? If they felt Montreal was one of the best 32 markets in North America for Major League Baseball, they would go there. The same would be true of Vancouver. But really, if you look at the difference between Vancouver and Portland relative to Seattle, it's not all that significant. Maybe somebody who lives up in the Pacific Northwest can provide a more enlightening answer, but the only thing I could come up with is the Blue Jay factor. And I don't even know that that's enough of a factor. So it's a curious one to me. Maybe it could be that the politicians in Portland and a certain group of fans or investors in Portland are more fervent about it than the people in Vancouver. I don't know. Yeah, Vancouver. I mean, Vancouver at its heart is a hockey city, right? Like the Canucks and all of that. But yeah, it, it is interesting. It's so far from Toronto too. Like Montreal is a lot closer I, to Toronto exactly. than Vancouver. It's yeah. like opposite sides of the country. Uh, all right. We have one more question, Ken. It comes from Geert um, over in Europe. Uh, they say... Having seen a few games prior, attending the International Series in London this summer, we would like to set up a great week of spring training looking ahead to 2025. Being Reds and Cubs fans, the presumption is to visit Arizona. That's a very good plan if you're doing this. Any tips on places to stay around certain ballparks, cool venues to visit, the schedule opportunities to see something the casual European fan would not know? Which week would be the best with games and accessibility to players? I'm here to learn. Well, Geert, thank you for the question. And first of all, you're talking to a guy who doesn't go out much, so I can't give you entertainment spots. But I can tell you about spring training in Phoenix. And yes, you're picking the right place, not just because the Cubs and Reds train there, but because there is such proximity to so many different parks. You can really drive to any park in that Cactus League without, I don't know, maybe going more than an hour. I don't know that any of those drives is more than an hour. Now, traffic would affect that, but... You get the idea. In Florida, the distances are much greater. Now, the Cubs play in Mesa, which is on one side of town, and the Reds play in Goodyear, which is on the other side of town. But again, you could stay in downtown Phoenix and have 
good access to both. There are many other areas you can stay in as well that are nice. Everybody loves Scottsdale. It's the most expensive, but it's really cool there. It's a great place to visit. As for different parks, I'll recommend Salt River, which is where the Rockies and Diamondbacks train. It is not only my favorite spring training park. It is actually one of my favorite places on earth. It's just beautiful. And the facilities are amazing, and the setting is incredible. It's a really cool place. Scottsdale Stadium, where the Giants train, is also an interesting place because it's really right in the heart of Scottsdale. And it's it's a cool little park, a lot of history there. A lot, they've been there a long time. And then there are the sites that have two teams. Goodyear, where the Reds are, is one of them. Reds and Guardians are in Goodyear. That's all the way east. Surprise, which is probably the most remote of any of these sites, That's where the Rangers and Royals are. And then Peoria is where the Padres and Mariners are. So basically what I'm saying is you can't go wrong in Phoenix. It's a great place to go. As for when to go, the games generally start, as fans know, around March 1st. And they go through March 30th. So any of those weeks would be a good week to go to see spring training. The only thing I will add to that is I agree Scottsdale's the place to stay, even though it is more expensive. That's where the there's it, as far as dining and stuff like that, it's I just think it's a better experience than Phoenix. And make sure you make it to the backfields. Um, don't just go to the game. Check out the backfields as well if you can and absolutely see the, the right. minor leaguers. And that's where you can get really close to baseball. Um, so that's my I've only been to Phoenix once. I've been to Florida too many times. Um, but my one trip of Phoenix was definitely better than all those trips to Florida. Um, All right. Great questions, as always. Uh, And just to let listeners know, this is actually going to be our final mailbag episode uh, with Ken. Um, I went back, Ken. I did some research. 74 episodes. You have answered just shy of 600 questions over the last two years. (laughs) Pretty good, right? (laughs) That's good math. Yeah. Uh, Very good. It may not be correct math, but it's close. It's around there. It's close enough. Uh, So we appreciate you putting in the time to share your thoughts. And obviously... Beyond that, to find the answers to the questions that you didn't know off the bat. I know the listeners appreciate that as well. I've had a great time working with you the last couple of years. It, it's really been a lot of fun. Tim, totally agree. And right back at you. It's been tremendous working with you. You've been a great partner. And you've done an amazing job putting this together every week and handling all the questions and all of that. Now, people might say, well, why is this the last mailbag? It's not because I'm leaving the athletic In fact, I'm not even leaving the athletic podcast world. I'll still be a guest on Starkville and some of the other shows. But I'm also going to be doing my own thing starting, I don't know, sometime around when the season starts. I'll have more on that later. And it's going to be somewhat similar to this, but a little bit different as well. So I really appreciate everyone for sending all these questions over the years because I've learned a lot in answering them and researching the answers and I can't say enough about Tim and just the great job he's done. And I also appreciate everyone just tuning in to listen because I know there's only so many hours in a day and any hours you devote to us, the athletic, either as a reader or a listener or both, it's always really greatly appreciated. So thank you, Tim. Thank you to everybody. And uh, we're not going anywhere. Don't worry about that. I'll still be writing a lot. I'll still be on podcasts here. Just won't be doing this one be visiting Starkville instead. Uh, we, we are also going to keep open the voicemail line and the, the email. So if you do have questions, get them in. We're going to spread them amongst the other shows on the feed. So if it's an analytics question, Eno will probably answer it. If it's a weird 
question, Jason will answer it. Uh, if it's something about prospects, you know, we we have Keith at the end of the week. So keep sending in questions. I'm going to keep monitoring them. And uh, there'll probably be less that get answered, but we're still going to try to answer them along the way. Um, and check out No Bunts. That is a new show on this feed. Uh, it started a couple of weeks ago with World Baseball Coverage. Um, that is the no dunks guys that you may know from the basketball side doing a little baseball on Wednesday. So check out that as well. Uh, join our YouTube page. If you hadn't go to youtube.com slash at the athletic baseball show. Uh, that is going to do it for us. Ken, it's been a blast. Uh, I am Tim McMaster. Just want to thank everyone for joining us and we'll talk to you next time.